Amen. Hasn't it been good to be here already today? Like a little better than that though, right? We saw people follow Jesus in baptism. Got to lift our voices in song with an excellent band that serves here every week. Are you thankful for those folks? Man, I am as well. I am so grateful for them. Good morning to you, HC. My name is Keaton. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to get to open God's Word with you this morning as we continue in our series, Letters to My Son. We're looking at Paul's letters to Timothy. So throughout history, there have been certain letters that were esteemed highly, either for the impact they had, maybe for the content of those letters, maybe they were esteemed because of who they were written to or who they were written by. Some examples, Albert Einstein co-wrote a letter in 1939 to FDR warning of the potential development of atomic bombs by the Nazi regime. That same year, Mahatma Gandhi wrote a letter to Adolf Hitler, encouraging him towards peace. Our country's forefathers wrote a letter, as it were, in 1776, declaring the colony's independence from the British. And Martin Luther King Jr. wrote the famous letter from Birmingham jail in 1963. Those are all important letters throughout history. And to us, they have an impact on us because of their impact in history. But I would say probably for you individually and for me as well, those letters aren't maybe as valuable as letters that you've received personally from someone you've loved. We asked uh, Monday morning in our staff meeting, because we're in this series, Letters to My Son, what's the best letter or card you've ever received? And uh, Pastor Luke said that he received a letter one time from Ashley that said, do you love me? Do you want to be my friend? I'm sure you know how the rest of that goes, and it ends with the line, check, yes or no. If you were wondering, he checked yes. And so that's kind of uh, fun and light, but that letter probably meant a big deal, right? Because it was personal. It was from someone that was loved and cherished. We learned last week that First and Second Timothy are letters from Paul to his true son in the faith, Timothy. And so these letters were very important to Timothy, and not only to him, but important to the church at Ephesus because the instructions Paul gives Timothy are to be applied and put into practice at the church at Ephesus. I would say, too, that they're important for us today as well. Paul wrote to Timothy indirectly to the church at Ephesus, and he did this inspired by the Holy Spirit of the living God. So these texts, they are applicable to us personally, and they are applicable to our church, Holland Chapel. How many of you last week took Luke's prompt and you read ahead to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy? Yeah, quite a few of you, quite a few of you. And how many of you are here today and you are ready to hear what it means for men to lift their hands, holy hands, in prayer? Yeah, not like a couple of you. How many of you, though, are really here because you want to know what Paul meant when he said women will be saved through childbearing? Yeah. I think there's some more hands that just were like, I want to go up, but I'm not going to. 
Yeah, we're going to talk about it and many more things in the letter Paul wrote to Timothy. Speaking of, let's jump in. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I urge you, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. Verse 7, and I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. Do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for this letter to us, your children. We pray that you'd give us Holy Spirit wisdom. As we see what words you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we are going to jump to verse 7. We'll come back to some of the earlier verses we read at the end, but I want to start in verse 7 for now. Paul says, I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. Paul here is validating himself and his instructions for Timothy and really for the church at Ephesus. Paul was an apostle of Jesus. We see this if we look back where we studied last week in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. We see that this letter was written from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means that Paul was taught the way of the gospel by Jesus. Okay, And so he is an apostle. His words are given authority. They, They mean a great deal. And so They mean a great deal to Timothy. They mean a great deal to the Ephesians, and they should mean a great deal to us. He is teaching authoritatively and for the benefit of the audience, and I believe us today. And so what is he teaching? Verse 8, he says, In every place of worship I want men to pray with holy hands lifted to God, free from anger 
and controversy. Paul gives instruction to the men of the church. And this is a specific word, men, here. Sometimes in our English translations, when uh, we see the word men, it's, it's talking about mankind or humanity, just generally men and, men and women, all of mankind. This word in the original text is specific to men. And he says, men, I want you to pray with holy hands to God. He's given this instruction to these men, and he wants them to be free of anger and controversy. Why would he say that? Well, if you remember from last week, or if you look back to chapter 1, we saw that there were at least certain men teaching things that were contrary to the true gospel of Jesus. They were lording the law over people when Jesus had, in fact, come and fulfilled the law and demonstrated that its purpose was to reveal our sinfulness and our need of a Savior. However, these men were lording the law over the people, the people of God, those transformed by Jesus, those walking in righteousness that can only be found in Jesus, and they were lording it over them, just legalistic and causing a problem and making their walk difficult and challenging. And Paul said last week, not only that, but they don't even know what they're talking about. And so Paul is saying that these folks are teaching a false doctrine. It's contrary to the gospel of Jesus and that Jesus has come and fulfilled that law and demonstrated its purpose to us, revealing our need for a savior, a sacrifice that we were desperate for. And his name is Jesus. Jesus was and is the only fitting sacrifice that could fulfill the law and fulfill the wrath of God against sin. So he lived a perfect life without sin. He died like a spotless lamb on the cross for our sins and the sins of the world. He was buried, dead, buried. And miraculously, he rose from the grave on the third day. He beat death, he beat hell, he beat the grave, and he took care of this great gulf that stood between us and a relationship with God. He made a way for us to be in communion with God and in communion with one another. He made it possible for us to have healthy relationships with each other and possible for us now to actually accomplish the instructions that we would receive from him, from Paul, and from the word of God and to live those instructions out in the church. Paul, in this verse, is giving men, I think, a little bit of a check So these men were looking to rise up in authority and step into a role that they just weren't mature for, they didn't know well. And so they were speaking as if they had authority so that people would think they were wise in Christ and they would think they knew the gospel well. But in fact, Paul says they were getting it wrong. And so I think he's checking them a little bit and saying instead of trying to usurp authority and teach when you don't know what you're talking about I'm going to instruct you towards something in humility how about you lead with head bowed hands extended in prayer and cut out the anger and the nonsense and the controversy that you're stirring up among one another these men needed to submit to the authority the authority first found in Christ Jesus and then in Paul, and then in Timothy. I think the best way for them to do that was to do it while leading in prayer. You know, prayer is one of the most vulnerable acts you can do in worship. 
And I believe if you are engaging in prayer biblically and rightly, there's really no opportunity to puff up there, is it? It's one of the most vulnerable things you can do. And so Paul instructs these men, instead of trying to step into a role you're not ready for or capable of or even fit for, why don't you pray humbly? Lift your hands to God. And let's be done with all this anger towards one another and controversy. He goes on in verse 9 and 10, and he speaks specifically to the women at the church of Ephesus, and he says, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. So in the same way that there were men stepping out of line and trying to teach authoritatively where they didn't have a place, the women here were obviously dressing fancy, wearing their nicest things. Why? For the sake of people noticing them, okay? I don't think this is an an indictment against people having nice things or dressing in a particular way. I don't think you see that in Scripture, but it's fair to take into this reading the context that there were obviously women there dressing to draw attention, to impress, probably at the expense of other people who didn't have the means to do that. And so they're creating this divide, this gap within the church, which there is no place for, amen, church? There is no place for creating a gap where we make ourselves better, higher, more appreciated, more revered, more respected than someone else in the church. Christ did away with all of that when he died for our sins, demonstrating that we're all on a level playing field, and that is wicked and dead in our sins and in need of life. And so... He's telling them, don't dress in a way to draw attention at the expense of another sister in Christ. Instead, why don't you put on Christ and his righteousness and clothe yourself in good deeds? He goes on in verses 11 and 12 and says, women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. This is a tough passage as I was researching for it. Uh, I came across a couple of quotes I want to give you from some biblical scholars. One named Tom Schreiner says, scholars debate virtually every single word. Bill Riken says, put simply, this passage defies simple answers. Here's our answer, I think, today. Humbly trying to understand what the Holy Spirit is really saying. Some maybe potentially the same women who were trying to draw attention to themselves. Likely were trying to usurp authority to teach false teachings, just like the men from chapter 1 were doing. Or perhaps they were openly rebuking these men out of order and without any compassion. We can't be 100% sure, but we will learn later in the series about how to sort out this kind of correction and how it should be handled. And we'll talk about an example of it today. Is Paul teaching that the women of Ephesus or all women in all times and places should literally listen quietly? Here's some ideas to consider, and then I'll give you what I believe to be what the Holy Spirit is telling us today here at Holland Chapel. 
Is Paul saying that all women, all times, all places should not teach in the church? I think there are a lot of problems with that idea. If you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to write these uh, passages down. I just, we just don't have time to go through all of them, and that's not really my style. I like to stay in one passage because I'm not smart enough to remember a hundred different things. But I think these are good because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. It's not me, thank goodness, and it's not any other person. It's the Word of God itself. There are plenty of instances in Scripture where Paul affirms the teaching and the ministry of women. He does it in Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. He does it in Romans 16 verses 1, 6, and 12. He does it again in Philippians chapter 4 verses 2 and 3. In the Acts of the Apostles chapter 18 verses 24 and 26, We're told about a person named Apollos, a man who is eloquent in the teaching of the gospel. Guess where? In Ephesus. And a woman named Priscilla and her husband Aquila take him aside, and the Bible says they show him even more accurately the way of God. And so Apollos is esteemed as as an excellent teacher of the gospel and who does right by it. But he was missing this caveat to the gospel of Jesus. And Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, not publicly blast him in front of the whole church. And they say, look, what you're doing is great and awesome. And you are obviously gifted in this. There's more to the story that we want people to know. And they teach him, they teach him more accurately the way of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5, Paul assumes the act of praying and prophesying by women, so declaring the truth of Scripture. That's what that means. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, just listen to all the cohesiveness here. Paul's instructions that we're reading and to the church at Ephesus and his next letter to Timothy Chapter 1, verse 5, he takes time to esteem Timothy's mom and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois. So I think it's a poor application of this text to our context to say that all women, all times and places are not allowed to engage in the ministry of God or to teach the truth of God in any capacity. I, I don't think that's a good application. I think it was a great application for this church and this time Because there were obviously men and women alike who needed to mature in the way of God. And Paul's telling Timothy, just tell them to pump the brakes a little bit for now until there's been some discipleship, some mentorship. Let's just hold our horses a little bit. I tell my kids that. Do y'all ever have to say that? Just hold your horses. Cool your jets, man. All right, another possible idea Paul could be saying that only the women at Ephesus shouldn't authoritatively teach as a pastor or elder would in a worship gathering. But if you're outside of this specific time and place, well, then it's okay to teach authoritatively and serve in the role of pastor, elder. I think that as we continue to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, that this is inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. In Titus chapter 1, And in the passage we're going to look at next week, 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's spoken of qualified men being used in the role of pastor, elder. 
qualified men. And we don't have any other examples in the scripture of women elders. And we have examples, tons of them, of women who are stepping into their role, empowered by God to do this, that, and the other thing. But I don't see any examples of women elders in the rest of scripture. What we believe here at Holland Chapel is that Paul is saying that women can and should teach, but should not aspire to or be permitted to do so in a way authoritatively as a pastor elder in the worship gathering of the church. But I'm going to tell you that I have been so blessed by the teaching of women in our own church and by their service to the Lord in ministry. They don't have to esteem to this role of pastor elder to be an incredible benefit to me and to our church. And I won't be able to name them all, but a handful of those women, Miss Patsy, Miss Jean, Miss Gala, Miss Lita, Miss Becky, Miss Sherry, Jennifer, Tara, Kathy, Mallory, Sam, Amanda, Terry, Tiffany. These women have all been used for the benefit of our church to the glory of God and frankly have personally benefited me in my life and my walk of faith. And that's just here in this church. This is essentially the only role in the church where women are not permitted to serve. But it is so important to note also that being a man doesn't qualify you. Only qualified men, as we will look at next week, are called upon by God and recognized by the church to serve as pastor elder. It's so crucial to remember that this distinction does not in any way demean or make lesser than God's precious, precious daughters and my sisters and your sisters in Christ. In fact, I've heard it put this way, and this will be on the screen for us. Men and women, both, are created in the image of God and are equal in worth, dignity, and value, and share the same mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. It is paramount that we understand that. Later in this text we're reading, Paul's going to tie this whole argument into things from the beginning, the created order and the fall. And it's such a big deal in those passages in Genesis to demonstrate to us and to the people that men and women are equal in the sight of God. The writer makes such a big deal to show that all of the rest of God's creation dims in comparison to humanity men and women, that he made more of more value, more importance, more dignity, more honor, more authoritative roles in creation, it's so crucial for us to remember that first, men and women are created equal, equal image bearers, equal value, equal worth, should be treated with equal dignity because we have an equal mission, that is to share the good news of the gospel with others. That is first and foremost. Second is this truth, and it will also be on the screen. Men and women are distinctly different from one another. We fulfill that equal value and image bearing in different roles, and those roles should be celebrated. And it's obvious, right? We're different from one another. 
You can tell by anatomy. You can tell by perspective. You can tell by the fact when I go to the closet and can't find something, and then I ask Megan, it magically appears right there. It was not there first, okay? (laughs) I don't know. That's a supernatural gifting of God or something, but I don't have it. I don't have that gift. It didn't exist. I left. Megan came. It exists now. I'm convinced that's how it works. These differences we have, they should be celebrated. Listen at me, celebrated and appreciated, not just with lip service appreciated, but genuinely appreciated and called upon in the work of the mission of Christ. Verses 13 through 15. I got to hustle. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. There are several interpretations of this, these verses as well. But once again, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And where we have the opportunity, we allow the immediate context of Scripture to help us interpret this Scripture. In my opinion, a literal translation is silly here. Women are not physically, are not saved by physically bearing children. Okay, I just don't, that doesn't make sense, not because I think so, but because you don't see that in Scripture anywhere. This, in fact, would be a contradiction of Paul's letters to the church at Ephesus in chapter 5, excuse me, in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when he says, you're saved by grace through faith alone not of the works you do, okay? By grace through faith. He also isn't saying that those who struggle with infertility are somehow cursed or lesser than. That is just not the truth, okay? And in fact, let me say this. Motherhood is way more about spiritual mentorship than physically being able to give birth to a child. I don't think that I'm like 100% like licensed to speak on the topic because I hadn't been there, but I'm just saying... Okay, the, the women I have the most appreciation for in my life, it's because of way, the way they've mentored me spiritually. So Paul is not condemning, and I think there's not a lot of people but some that think that's what that's speaking of, that somehow a, a woman is lesser than if she can't have a kid, and that is, you just don't see that in Scripture, and Scripture's got to win the day. Another interpretation, this isn't talking about salvation of men and women through the ultimate birth of Jesus, although that's true. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, and he's the only one capable and worthy to stand in our place and to give us forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that, Holland Chapel? Absolutely, it's true. That is a truth. That is sound doctrine. But but that's not what this is talking about. And so it's important that we don't pick a tr- pick scriptures out of context to validate something that we believe, even if it is true, because eventually that'll get us in trouble. And we'll use it to validate something that is not true. Paul doesn't employ that kind of language anywhere else to make that point, and so we can't say logically that that's a good interpretation here either. What we believe here at Holland Chapel is that Paul is saying that women, their salvation will be lived out as they fulfill their roles in the family and the church with faith, love, holiness, and modesty. He grounds his argument in things that transcend time and culture. The created order, 
the fall of man. These things are not specific to a time or place that somehow if we didn't live at Ephesus, then we didn't fall into sin along with Adam. We did. And the order he created transcends time and culture as well. Paul is not saying that Eve and thus all women are somehow incompetent. Okay, so that, well, Eve was deceived because she's not as competent or not as intelligent And so all women are lesser than in that regard. That is not accurate at all. In fact, Paul blames Adam solely for the fall of man and for being deceived in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. And so we keep allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Paul is encouraging men and women to step into their God-ordained roles as he does in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. It's important to note here in that set of verses where he talks about submission, it's, it's even mutual submission. And this is done by the submitter, sidebar. You don't force submission, okay? That's not in the way of Christ. We allow people to step into submission. God forgive us and me when I've gotten that wrong. It's also important to note that all women do not submit to all men. That's not the way the order was made. God gave Adam and Eve to one another. And so, yes, there is this degree of of submission as we demonstrate love in the home. But that doesn't mean that all women submit to all men. Men, we can make this so much easier, I hope, in our homes by appreciating our spouses genuinely and longing to partner with them, remembering that we're both image bearers created and valued equally by God. And may we here at Holland Chapel look to empower women in the ministry of Jesus. I think it's a scared thing when churches have gotten this wrong. We don't want to, we don't want to be driven by fear. We need to foster opportunities for men and women to flourish Because if men and women are healthy and flourishing, then our whole church is healthier. So what are some ways that we can apply this truth to our lives today? Number one, pray. Paul starts with this. I urge you, he says, first of all, pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray for your pastors and elders. Pray for your church to forbear with one another and consider one another higher than themselves. And pray for other authorities outside the church. He cites kings and other authorities in these verses. Number two, we need to live peacefully, live quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. It's just a quote of what Paul said because it's good advice. If we would seek to live peacefully, not be in contention with our brothers and sisters, if we would be marked by living quiet lives, not seeking the platform, not seeking other people's attention, drawing people in the worship gatherings' attention to me instead of drawing their attention to God, we would do well. We would live lives that please God, that are showing one another dignity, the dignity that they deserve. We can thrive in roles that are lesser than pastor, elder, if we serve in humility 
because those roles are incredibly important to the worship of God and the edification of his church. Number three, all people in the church submit to the authority of Jesus. I think sometimes people esteem the role of pastor elder, which it should be esteemed, but, but too much. Jesus is the head of the church. Do you believe that? And Jesus is rightly the head of the church. And he's chosen to work through us as part of his body. And one office of that is pastor elder, but it is so far down the ranks from Jesus, who is the head of the church. We need to submit ultimately to him, submit to his word, because there are things in here, including this passage today, that I don't just frankly care for that much. If I was writing it, it would be horrible, first of all. But if I was writing it, it wouldn't include some of this stuff, okay? But I'm not. This is God's holy word, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And so there are things in there that I don't like. There are things in there that I, there are things not in there I wish were, but I don't make up the rules, I'm choosing to submit my life to what Jesus says. And I don't have to necessarily like it, but I learn as I mature in Jesus, hopefully, that his goodness is not always something where he gives me the desire of my heart. His goodness is not always something that I longed for or that uh, tickles my fancy. There's another phrase for you. Sometimes his goodness is in correction and rebuke, and I need it, and it's painful, and it hurts, or it's just uncomfortable but it is no less good. We submit to Jesus, his authority, his word, and we mutually submit to each other in worship, esteeming one another high, more highly than ourselves. Number four, we foster a mutual respect and appreciation for each other as equal in the sight of God and distinctly different in gifting and ability. Can't all be hands, can't all be eyes, can't all be feet, but we can be the body of Christ together. And we should gladly welcome those different giftings. So maybe you directly apply what we've learned here today. And men, humbly lead in the act of prayer. Or women, humbly lead in the act of modesty, faith, love, and holiness. I hope that you find opportunity to step into your giftedness. And I hope that here at Holland Chapel, we encourage that, okay? We want to be true to what the Scripture says, but we don't want to be afraid of doing things that aren't prohibited in Scripture either. If we can do these things and first of all pray, I believe we will accomplish verses 3 through 6. And what we do will be found as good and pleasing to God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. We will live out this truth, that there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, and he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave the world at the right time. It's going to make us look different than the world. And when people notice that difference, we can point them to that truth of the gospel that they're desperately in need of this one God and one mediator between he and ourselves. And his name is what, church? Jesus, absolutely. I'm gonna pray and the band's gonna come up now and I hope that you will spend time praying as well. Maybe, I don't know for what, um, but for me this week it's been praying 
to hear and understand from the Holy Spirit what the Word is actually saying, not what I have been taught before necessarily, not what I want it to be. Um, I pray that you would pray for our church, that we would esteem men and women both highly and be grateful for God's gift in our lives for both. Pray that we would walk in the truth of Scripture and not in something based in fear. Um, Yeah, let me pray for us. Father, you are a good God. We recognize your goodness. We recognize that your truth is, it's, it's powerful and it is good. We pray that you would help us to get really good at submitting to your authority. Help us to get really good at esteeming one another more highly than ourselves. Help us get really good at being content with a quiet and peaceful life, acting in humility. Not so that we can feel proud in and of ourselves, but so that we can make much of the name of Jesus, that we can build up our brothers and sisters in the faith. Speak over us now as we continue to worship you through singing, through prayer, maybe through silence as we listen to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.